0: This morning we're going to finish off John 17. We looked at that passage for two weeks, and then last week BP preached. And this morning we're going to look at the last section of John 17, and uh, it's John 17:20 through 26. And if you have a Bible, you can you can open that up. But we're going to be looking at it here uh, on on the uh, projector. Let's just hear God's word for a moment. Jesus is praying. And he's continuing his prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only. What does he mean? Well, he was praying initially for the disciples. And, uh, and he, first he prayed to his own heart before the Father. Then he prayed for the disciples. Now he's praying not just for the disciples at that point in time, but he's praying for us right now. And he said, I don't pray for these only. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become one, perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, take this passage of Scripture now and open our eyes to how Jesus was praying for us. And we pray that his prayer, that he continues to pray even now before the Father, would come true, become true in our lives individually, in this congregation, Lord, in this city, and state, and our nation, and even in our world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we were just sitting over coffee at Swift and Finch, and I were to ask you the question, what do you find yourself praying about these days? I would guess that you would be responding in some ways similar to a friend of ours. Now, who's this friend? Well, George Bailey. You remember George Bailey from uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Listened in as he is praying to God. If you couldn't quite catch that, what George Bailing has said is, I've made a mess of things and I need your help. Someone has, someone has once said that, that help, the cry, help, is the most profound prayer that a person can pray. What I discover, if you're like me, what I discover is the things that I pray about more often than not are the things which are really boiling up in my heart. Like, for example, right now I have a son who's moving to to New Jersey, and they're moving from St. Louis to New Jersey, and they're looking for a home. And they're looking for a home where there's enough room for their family and there's the school system for their kids that they want. And, and as they've been just sharing about this, you know what it's like trying to find a house. And to go through that process within their price range, that's just been on my heart. I've been praying for it. This morning... My other son and his family got on board a plane to go on a trip to Vancouver, British Columbia, and so I, I've just been praying for them. They're on a plane right now, and that's just that's just on my heart. We pray for the things that are on our hearts, just like George P- Bailey was saying. I've I've made a mess of things. God, is there a way that you can help? is it interesting to ask the question: What is Jesus praying about when he's preparing to go to the cross? You know, he's 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 almost at that point where he's going to be betrayed and dragged off, and he knows he's going to be whipped and scourged, go through deep pain, and yet he knows the sacrifice he's going to be making uh, and and that God has called him to. But what's he praying about? What's really on his heart as he prays? We've seen before the last last weeks we studied in John 17, we saw that the first week Jesus prayed that people would come to know the Father through him. That this is one of the deep burdens on his heart. Why he came in the first place. To die on the cross. To provide a means by which people can come to know the Father and to know him. And that really, that is eternal life. And so he's praying about that. Then the next thing he prays about is for those who come to know him. He knows that as they come to know him, they're going to be living in a world that is under the power of the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work. And he realizes that that's going to create a conflict. And so he prays for the disciples that would follow him as they are engaged in that conflict with what he would call the world. This week, we discover that Jesus is praying two more things. that, That the people that would know him and know the Father would actually exhibit a unity in the context of this world. And that secondly, that they would be with him in his glory, which is to come. So we want to explore these two things this morning. What does it mean for us to experience the unity of Christ among believers? And what does it mean for us to be with him in glory? Now, we see Jesus stressing this idea of unity in two places in the passage we just read. In verse 21, Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Secondly, then in praise in verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world, misspelling, may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, this may sound familiar to you, to those of you who've been here for the last few weeks, because in that, in the, in the second sermon on this passage in verse 11, Jesus also prayed this prayer. He said, Holy father, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. So we discover there that this idea of unity is deeply embedded in Jesus's heart and prayer. Now, you might find that as something confusing and surprising because when you think, at least when I think of the church and I think of the body of Christ, I don't think of unity as our greatest representation. You know, I experienced this yesterday. Janet and I went to pick up something at a particular store here in town, um, CVS Pharmacy, and we pulled in next to a car with a bumper sticker on it. And the bumper sticker had a cross, and the, and the bumper sticker said, if this offends you, wait till you stand before it in eternity. And I was scratching my head saying to myself, well, you know, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with what the bumper sticker is saying, but, I, you know, is that the way I want to project the body of Christ in Rome? But then I thought to myself, how do I feel about this brother or sister? who's slapping this bumper sticker on their car. They're my brother and sister in Christ. How am I going to, to, to deal with my attitude towards them? And that's what Jesus is actually praying about, that, that in the midst of all the diversity in our perspectives, that we would still demonstrate a unity to the watching world. Now, what is that going to look like? Well, we need to look into the passage to see what Jesus is saying, as well as look into the broader Scripture. And I'd suggest to you, first of all, that we have to identify what this unity is not because often it's misunderstood. And I'd suggest to you that this unity is not, first of all, primarily around organizations and programs. Often we assume that if we're going to demonstrate unity, it means we have to do all kinds of things together. As a matter of fact, there was a a whole movement years ago, back in the 60s and 70s. It was called the ecumenical movement. And the idea it was primarily promoted in what we might call the mainline churches. And the idea there was, we need to fulfill what Jesus is praying in John 17. So therefore, we need to demonstrate an organizational unity to the world. And they worked and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and spent hundreds of, of hours in meetings and things talking about how can we do things together as an organizational unity, only to see it fall apart in the end and not do anything, which demonstrates the fact that virtually every organization, Christian, non-Christian, whatever it is, almost every organization is um, unstable. It's difficult to find unity, and if you If you experience a level of unity for a period of time, you can't assume that that's going to be taking place. Organizations and churches are unstable environments. And organizational unity or unity around programs only takes you so far, but it really doesn't accomplish what Jesus is praying about in this prayer. Unity also has to be around, um, yes, let's see, bingo, There it is. You can't have unity without substance. What do I mean by that? There is a a reality that there is a, a, a substance around which we believe which causes us to be unified together. The reason I bring that up is because often the idea of unity is let's dumb down Christianity to its lowest common denominator, create the biggest tent possible that anybody virtually could fit into it, and then say we are unified. Again, that's not what we find in the scriptures. The scriptures have a very clear level of content around which we are called to be unified. And therefore, unity can't be just on the lowest common denominator. It's kind of like a friend of mine that uh, I was in graduate school with whose parents had been married for over 30 years. But a good 20 plus of those years, they'd lived in different rooms and lived completely separate lives. But what they wanted to do was to project to the watching world that they had a marriage. So they lived together in the same house, but if you were to know them or to talk with their kids, you'd realize that there's really no marriage here at all. There's no substance to this form that they're trying to present to a watching world. Similarly, in the body of Christ, our unity has to be around a significant significant level of substance. So... Let's move on and say if this is what unity is not, that is, if it's not just kind of the lowest common denominator, and if it's not around organizations and programs, what do we find in the scriptures that our unity is around? Well, our unity, as Jesus is speaking about it, is a spiritual unity. He says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may be in us. And the idea there is through the Holy Spirit... Jesus is in us, and we are in Jesus just as Jesus was in the Father, and the Father was in Jesus. That there is a spiritual reality happening here. He says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them. I in them, and you in me. You see here that there is a spiritual reality. Jesus talks about, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, about this idea of the new birth. And if a person is experienced this new birth by the Holy Spirit, the scriptures tell us that we have a spiritual unity with them. But not only do we experience spiritual unity by coming to Jesus, in 1 John chapter 1, the author says, how do we experience fellowship with one another? And he says that fellowship comes by walking in the light. As he is in the light, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, this could get us off down a rabbit trail of what does it mean to walk in the light. So let me just give you one simple idea. Walking in the light means that I am open to the Holy Spirit showing me my brokenness and my sin. And that I allow his Holy Spirit to show me that, that the light would shine in my darkness And that day by day, I would be living before him, allowing the spirit to bring me to repentance. Now, if you have two people who are walking in repentance, they're not sitting around trying to shine themselves on each other. They're acknowledging their brokenness to each other. And Jesus says through John that if we are broken before him, we have a unity because we're all living in forgiveness. So, what it means to have spiritual unity means to have come to faith in Christ, but it also means to be walking in the light together. John says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I experienced this a number of years ago. My family and I took a trip halfway around the world to Australia, and through some connections and friends we decided to to take a trip out to the outback. Now, we just went to the fringe of the outback, but it took us a full day driving for 12 hours to drive from Sydney to Broken Hill, Australia, which is just on the fringe of the outback. And there were some people there, John and Judith Curtis, who were involved in a very unique ministry. Now, if you were to, to, uh, to talk with me and to talk to John Curtis about our theological frames of reference you discover that we were coming from different places in many ways. But John and Judith were alive to the Spirit of God. They loved Jesus and wanted to see Jesus' kingdom come and his will be done. And you know, from the moment we set foot in Broken Hill and got to their house and stayed with them for over a week, we found together a unity, a beautiful unity in the body of Christ, regardless of whether we had different flavors and distinctions, we had a unity together so that we started sending Christmas cards and we continued to be in a level of contact knowing that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we had that immediate unity because we had both come to Jesus and we were seeking in our own understanding of the gospel to walk in the light together. So the scriptures teach us that unity is based around spiritual oneness. It's also based around... Um, Oh, yeah, that's another passage from Ephesians 4. Um, It's also based around, like I said, a substance. Some of you have heard, well, all of you in this room have heard the phrase, it's very popular in the news, called um, fundamentalists. If I was to ask anyone in this room, what's a fundamentalist, you'd be able to say probably something along the lines of, well, a fundamentalist is someone who is conservative, who believes in particular distinctions of things. They're pretty radical people who are pretty rigid in their, in their viewpoints. And you think of Islamic fundamentalists, or you think of the people protesting um, in, in, at the grave sites of, uh, of, 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 of people who've died over in Afghanistan. And there's truth in the way that that word has developed. But do you know where the word fundamentalist actually came from? Way back a hundred years ago, there was changes happening in the context of the church. People were watering down the truth of the gospel. And so a group of people got together and said, we need to share what are the fundamentals of our Christian faith. And they wrote four booklets, which ended up with 90 essays in them, which ended up talking about what they would call the basic fundamentals. And people from Episcopalian to Baptist and everything you can imagine in between contributed to these 90 articles. And they said there are certain basic beliefs that we think are necessary to demonstrate our unity in the body of Christ. And that's where the word the fundamentals came from. The idea of fundamentalist is what's our basic foundation of unity? We could say that it's the Apostles' Creed. We could say it's the Nicene Creed. There's numbers of creeds that have been written. And I'm not going to go through the different fundamentals here, but to simply say that in the context of the church's life, unity in the body of Christ has been discovered around a mutual coming to faith in Christ, walking in the light, and holding basic convictions together. That's what we're talking about when we think of the unity of the body. Now, how is the unity of the body supposed to reveal itself? What's the result of unity that Jesus talks about when he prays for this? This is when it really, the the airplane really lands for us as a church here in Rome, Georgia. Remember, one of our key distinctives, you hear it almost every Sunday from BP, he says, we desire in this church to see the kingdom of God, the invisible kingdom of God, become visible in Rome, Georgia. That conviction really is based upon these verses in John. Listen to what Jesus says. The result of the unity is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in verse 23, he says, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, that should be them, not the, loved them, even as you have loved me. This is a, an amazingly radical statement that Jesus is making here. First of all, what does he mean by the world? That the world may believe that you sent me, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We saw a number of weeks ago that the word the world in John and in, in this passage can mean many different things, it can mean everybody in the world. It can mean a few people in the world. It can mean those who are under the prince of the power of the air, those who aren't believers. It can mean many things. Here, what Jesus is saying in this passage, is that the world are those who are who do not have a relationship with God. Those people who are living in this world who don't know God, who haven't experienced that spiritual re- re- reawakening, they could be church members or members of, the, of Israel at that time, or not, but they haven't been reborn. They're not spiritually alive. They're literally under the power of the prince of the power of the air. Now, how are those people going to come to believe? Well, obviously, God's got to do something in their lives, right? I mean, God's got to do a work in their souls. True. But what are we to do to help them believe? To have great preaching? Well, that's not a bad thing, but That's not what Jesus says here. To have great arguments so that when you're in class, you can stand up and say, that's not right. This is what the truth is. Well, there's nothing wrong with having great arguments. But Jesus doesn't say that that is going to be the thing that demonstrates to the world that he came. And what what does it mean to those to really believe in him? What Jesus says is that the world can watch the church and see how they treat one another, and see how they live. And through that observation, they should see something unique and different. What Jesus is saying here is that if we want to see the the invisible kingdom of God become visible in Rome, Georgia, ultimately it's not going to be through great programs that we do, Ultimately, it's not going to be through amazing preaching or a phenomenal teaching. Ultimately, the people of Rome, Georgia, have the right to look at the way we talk and treat one another. The way we interact with one another. The way we sacrifice for each other. The way we pray for each other. And not just for the way that we do it with each other here, but the way we do it with people in other churches in this town. And the way that we do that in the name of Christ to the broader community. Jesus is saying that the the, the, the people of Rome, Georgia, have a right to look at us and to watch the way we function. And to see whether or not he actually came from the Father and and has transformed our lives. Now, does that scare you? That scares the bejeebies out of me. I mean, I look at my attitude, even yesterday as I look at that person's car with that bumper sticker. I'm saying, if some people in Rome, Georgia watched my reaction to that bumper sticker, they'd be wondering whether or not, you know, Jesus actually came because of my attitude. I remember having a conversation. I, I know I refer to this guy often, but Dr. Richard C. Halverson was my pastor growing up, and he just had a huge impact upon many of us. And I remember after he left our home church in Washington, he became the chaplain of the United States Senate. And he was sitting around talking to some of us, and he said, you know the greatest challenge that I have sharing Christ with senators on Capitol Hill? He said, it's not with Jesus. They all respect Jesus, who Jesus was. He said, the biggest problem is Christians. He They'll say things and be like, look at the way you Christians act toward one another. You expect me to believe what you believe when I see the way you treat each other? Wow, what what an indictment. Now, obviously, what I would say to those senators is, Christians are broken people. You know, please be patient with us. God isn't finished with us yet. At the same time, they ought to see at least a level of uniqueness happening among Christians and with Christians towards the watching world. Now, if they were to look at the kinds of activities that are happening, like um, the work that's being done by Christians dealing with HIV and with clean water overseas in Africa and other places, if they saw the the, the hospitals that have been established around the world and the work of missions, which... uh, has proclaimed Christ in deed as well as in word. There's all kinds of historical evidence, but they don't see those things. What they see is our flesh and blood treating, talking to one another. Let me give you a more positive example. Years ago, I, I lived I, when I was in high school, I lived in Maryland, and, and I was involved in a, a, a statewide activity for high school students at the Capitol. Well, it just so happened that a friend of mine That I had known through some football camps, a football player at at the Academy, at Naval Academy, uh, was in his his senior year, and I said to a friend of mine, let's we have a break, let's go over to the Naval Academy and see if we can find Bruce Bickle. Okay, and Bruce Bickle was on the on the Naval Academy football team. So we said, Let's go over there. So I go over there and we are walking on the campus, the post, whatever you call it at the Naval Academy, and we kind of not we don't know where we're going or what we're doing. And this Midshipman comes up to us and says, can I help you? Yeah, we'd like to find a guy named Bruce Bickle. Is there any way to find Bruce Bickle here? You know, we're just a couple of high school kids. We don't know what we're doing. There's thousands of midshipmen, but we're dumb enough to think we can go find him. So we, can, can you help us find Bruce Bickle? And, he, and you know what he did? He looked at us and he said, are you Christians? And, uh, you know, again, in my senior naivete, as a senior in high school, I said, yeah, we are. Are you? And he said, no. But if you're a friend of Bruce Bickle, everybody at the Naval Academy knows who he is, and they know he's a Christian. So I just figured, if you know Bruce Bickle, you must be a Christian. What a legacy that that brother had at the Naval Academy. What a respect that they had He didn't go around proclaiming from the housetops. He just lived a life that people had to respect. And they knew that the basis of that life was his walk with Jesus Christ. Oh, ever since I had that experience, I said, Lord, in some small way, if people would, they bumped into me, I'd spill Jesus on them. And, oh, if people bump into Seven Hills Fellowship, if we could just spill Jesus on them, so that they'd know by the way that they see us live and act, that we love Jesus and that we love one another in all of our blemishes and all of our weaknesses. Unity, Jesus prays for. But there's one other thing he prays for. He prays that we would be together with him, with the Father. This is really beautiful. He says, Father, I desire that they also, this includes you, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. He says, I want my brothers and my sisters who come to know me, I want them to see your glory. I want them to see what, 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 what I'm really like and what you're really like in the heavens. Some of you have seen Some of you, or older dudes like me, have seen, remember seeing a movie called Rudy. Rudy was back, I think, 1994 or 1995, but it's a true story about a guy who went through all kinds of difficulties. He was dyslexic and didn't even realize it. Back in those days, they didn't identify that until he didn't know that that was a problem of his. He came from a blue-collar background and family. Nobody went to college, but he had a dream. He had a dream to go to Notre Dame, and it, he had a bigger dream to play football at Notre Dame. The problem was he was about five foot nine, about 185 pounds, and really wasn't very athletic. But the story in the movie and the, goes and shows you the true story of the fact that he, what they don't say in the movie is, is after he high, graduated from high school, two years in the Navy. After two years in the Navy, he came back and worked two years in the steel mills. But then he still had this burning passion to become a football player at Notre Dame. But he didn't have good enough grades because of his dyslexia to get into So he went to junior college, and he worked and worked, and he discovered about his learning disability, and he worked through that. And while he was at the junior college, he also was over at Notre Dame working in the athletic department with the custodians there. And he worked and he worked and he worked. Finally, he was accepted into Notre Dame the first person in his family to go to college after two years in junior college. And he was dumb enough to go out and try out as a walk-on on the football team. And you, as you read the story, you see he was allowed to stay on the, on, the, on the squad that worked out with the team, but he never was dressing up on the team for all the football games. And for the years, he would work out and he would be basically a, a, a tackling dummy he would be part of the, the 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 squad that that went out there and let basically get beaten up by the varsity in order to practice for the game that week and finally at the at the very last game of his senior year, the coach lets him suit out for the final game and you can just imagine on the TV how they're making this big deal and and the team voted to let him run out first on the field now. The interesting fact is, do you know what Rudy, in that movie and also in the true story, what his deepest desire was? He he had this passion all of his life to play football. But his deepest desire on the Sunday that he, I mean, on the the week that he was going to dress out was for his family to be in the stands. He wanted his family to be there. Not to say, I told you so, but to rejoice with him. And as you watch the movie, you see his dad and his brother and they're just going crazy, seeing their son down on the field, suited up. And then in the end of the movie, he makes the last tackle in the game, and it's dramatic, and they carry him off on their shoulders. But the important thing is, you see, Rudy's desire was for his family to see him after all he had been through. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look at all that I've been through taking on human flesh, becoming a servant. I'm about to go to the cross and die. And now what is his greatest desire? He says, I want the world to see this. I want them to see it through the visible unity of the body. But then more than anything else, I want my brothers and sisters to be with me in glory. That's what Jesus's prayer is for you and for me. And just stop for a moment. Imagine what it's going to be like to see Jesus. And then imagine what it's going to be like to see other brothers and sisters, family members, friends, people historically who've gone before us, and all of us gathering together around the throne and worshiping Jesus together. The unity of the body of Christ in its final example in the heavens. Hallelujah. Jesus' prayer for us, that we would be one, so that the world would know, and that the, then we would be with him. Final last story. Yes, it's going to work. It will work, yes. I believe it's going to work. I didn't turn it off. Here it comes. I want to show you some pictures here. There it is. Anybody recognize that picture? This is one of my heroes from the 20th century. A guy named John Stott. John Stott was a godly brother in Christ, an Episcopal a rector, a writer, very involved in world missions. And I always loved his work. And I had the privilege years ago, to be in a class, one-semester class with John Stott, teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the first things John Stott did in the class was talk about somebody else. You can't see this picture as well, but that's a fellow by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in Great Britain. And Dr. Stott uh, assigned us Dr. Jones's book on the Sermon on the Mount. And he got up and he said, this is the greatest book that's ever been written on the Sermon on the Mount. And he said it's been written by the preeminent preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, folks, for John Stott to say that Martin Lloyd-Jones is the preeminent preacher, I mean, that's like gold standard, okay? And so I'm going, wow, this is amazing. And then one day I had the privilege while he was teaching to have dinner with Dr. Stott. He was just sitting over in the cafeteria and I went over there and I started pumping. But I said, tell me a little bit about Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he just went off on it. He just talked about how much he respected Lloyd-Jones and how much he appreciated him and what a great influence he'd had on Great Britain, but also in the whole world. So I'm thinking, boy, this is fantastic. It wasn't until maybe... Ten years later that I discovered that three years before I had Dr. Stott for this class, three years before, Dr. Stott and Dr. Lloyd-Jones had a public falling apart before a large assembly of people in Great Britain. It turned out, without getting into all the weeds, that that Dr. Lloyd-Jones had been invited to speak before this large assembly, and he called all the Episcopalians, all the Anglicans in the the group to leave the Anglican church for various reasons. The next day, Dr. Stott got up in front of this very same group and disagreed with Lloyd-Jones and said, this is the reasons why you should stay in the Anglican church. Oh man, tension, disagreement, struggle. But here Dr. Dr. Stott gets in front of our class and he assigns the book by Dr. Lloyd-Jones and says this is the preeminent preacher of the 20th century and highly recommends the book. I discovered later on that Dr. Lloyd-Jones and Dr. Stott got together for a meeting. And to quote what happened in the meeting according to Dr. Stott, Dr. Stott said, some people feel like we are in disagreement with each other and not in fellowship together. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, oh, I know, it is absurd, isn't it? People are very mischievous. They can't distinguish between principles and personalities. You know what he's saying there? Yes, we disagree over this issue, but we love each other. We're brothers together in the same body of Christ and Overall, we support and encourage one another and stand together for the gospel. So, yes, there's going to be disagreements. Yes, we're going to have differences. But we need to walk in the light, to repent to one another, where there are differences, acknowledge our differences, but where we agree together to stand together in agreement. Why? So that the world will know that we are his disciples that Jesus came in the flesh and is with the Father now and can't wait to see each one of us be with him in glory with him. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for your prayer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it says in Hebrews and other places in the Scripture that even right now you are at the right hand of the Father praying. And if you prayed this prayer before you went to the cross, It means you're praying this prayer right now. And I believe, Jesus, that your prayer is going to be answered. And part of that answer is our attitudes and our hearts today. And so I pray, Jesus, for each one in this room that we would begin to begin the be the answer to your prayer. And that your Holy Spirit would open us up to your love. And show us the unity that we have in the body of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that Rome, the people of Rome, and the people of the state of Georgia, and the people in the United States, yes, Lord, the people in this world, would know that you have come and have died and have resurrected from the dead because of the way that we visibly care for one another. Oh, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, Break our hearts to know you and to walk in repentance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.